This is episode 168, Great Fire of 1917. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this month, 105 years ago, the Great Fire of 1917 swept through Atlanta. Over the course of 10 hours, we lost 73 square blocks, 300 plus acres, almost 2,000 buildings, and 1,900 homes. So in honor of that anniversary, I'm going to re-release this episode I did all the way back in 2019. It's also, personally, I started a new job, and all of those memes where people are like drinking out of a fire hose, that is how I feel right now. So I have a really exciting... Um, full-length episode about the Humane Society coming up um, and another really fun mini episode. But um, I feel like these kind of older episodes have been forgotten to time for a lot of you newer listeners. And these are really important kind of main big picture events that are part of Atlanta's history. Fires can not only change physical landscapes, but it's really fascinating to see how they can impact social issues, housing, and just the city in general. I think every major city has had a history-changing fire. We have San Francisco, Chicago, London, and I bet you there are small cities all around the country that have a story of a big fire as well. When I spent those few hours with Joe Talbert, he had interesting stories to add about Atlanta's infamous blaze. Before we get into the details of the fire, though, I want to repeat some things that I mentioned in the fire department episode mostly about the mechanics and logistics of firefighting in Atlanta at this time because this really played a large role in the outcome of the fire. At this time, the fire department is majorly run by horsepower, literally. Horses were the most important members of the team. They're bred for their strength, their fearlessness, and there were some motorized engines, but those were few and far between. At the sound of the bell, the horses instinctually stand up, suited with heavy equipment, and they traverse the cobblestone streets towards a fire. Horses are pulling steamer wagons, and then the way this whole system works requires a lot of manpower, a lot of horses, and a lot of equipment. So there's three separate wagons that show up to a fire. One contains the steam wagon, essentially the power that propels the water. The second wagon is the coal wagon, which you need to supply the steam engine. And the third wagon contains the fire hose itself, so you could not fit that all into one. In order to place a call when you saw a fire, you'd run to the nearest call box, of which 1,200 fireboxes existed around the city. So there was, it's pretty safe to say there was one in almost every street corner. Each box is numbered, so if you discover a fire, you run to the call box, open up the door, and pull the alarm. And what the box does is it immediately makes a kind of a humming sound, and really what it's doing is typing out Morse code, sending that to kind of a central department, and then the person gets the box number, checks his chart, you know, sees which station is nearby, and then he sounds the alarm at that station. And now let's talk about that fateful early summer day. Monday, May 21st, 1917, was a clear, sunny, and dry day. A brisk breeze was blowing out of the south, and it had not rained in two weeks, so everything was dry. And when I say everything, that includes the wooden shingles that made up almost all of the homes in Atlanta. It's pretty common knowledge at the time that wood shingles were a dangerous fire hazard, and the National Board of Fire Underwriters actually issued a report for Atlanta that said, quote, high conflagration hazard. And a conflagration, I remember I asked Chief Talbert, it means a fire that is above the available resources. 
1916, the city passes a code to ban wood shingles, and it's supposed to go into effect in January of 1917. But the very powerful and influential lumber lobby had other ideas, and so they were able to successfully push it back to June. Now keep these dates and months in mind here. January, and this fire happens in May. In 1917, Atlanta, with most of the country, has their minds on World War I. The U.S. had just entered. And so there's, you know, there's a preoccupation. War is happening. People are going off to war. So the last thing on your mind was a day of fire after fire after fire. The first fire of the day is recorded at 9.32 a.m. at the home of J.T. Walker, which was on Grant Street. And that was responded to by Engines 10 and Engine 9. The second call of the day comes in at 11.39 a.m., the Candler Warehouse, now fun fact, this is actually a development that's now called Met Atlanta, so a lot of people toured that during Phoenix Flies, um, but the Candler Warehouse catches fire, and the warehouse was just about to install a sprinkler system the next day, and it unluckily caught fire, and even more unluckily was storing 500 bales of cotton. So you can imagine how well that turned out. Two more engines were assigned to tackle this fire. A third alarm rings at 11.43 a.m., and this happened uh, two young, mischievous boys in the West End basically set a pile of garbage on fire in the backyard of a house on York Avenue. That fire, the kids trying to put it out by themselves, I think the neighbor eventually tried to take a hose, but it spread really quickly. It spread to the neighboring two homes and then more, and then the way people explain it is just that, you know, both sides of the block were on fire. Many other engines are called into this one, um, and then engine number five is called in, and they're one and a half miles away. That does not seem far to us right now, but remember, this is horse-drawn, so it is rare for a team of horses to go more than a mile. Now imagine a fourth call coming in. There is a fire on Woodward Avenue. That is in the neighborhood that's now um, considered Summerhill. And at this point, almost every fire engine, firehouse in the city has been dispatched. The men and the horses are exhausted, they're injured, there are stories of horses pulling up to the scene with bleeding hooves. Um, Ira Tolbert was one of Joe's ancestors. He was the fire department hostler at the time. This is the term for the man in charge of all the horses, um, but there is kind of documentation about the, the concern about the horses needing to be replaced. So all of the things I just talked about are happening before noon. And we have not even gotten to the fire yet. At 12.46 p.m., a person was passing near Decatur Street and saw a plume of smoke. They ran to box number 46 and pulled it. And the operator almost ignored the call. Um, at this point, imagine how many calls were trying to come in. Many of them were not going through or getting lost. And at some point, you know, if they saw a box that was near a fire, they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we know about that one already. Thankfully, though, they took the message. The smoke was coming um, from a stack of burning mattresses that was at a storage shed being used by Grady Hospital. So here's where my conversation with Chief Talbert was really special. He gave me some firsthand knowledge. Uh, his grandfather or great-grandfather, I'm thinking great-grandfather, but I cannot um, he was first on the scene to a small fire at a house on Bell Street. This man arrived, he was driving the coal wagon, and for the rest of his life, he lamented how if he had just had a hose on his truck, he would have prevented this whole disaster. 
See, the story is that this house fire on Bell Street was the initial fire that ignited embers on the storage shed. Either way, this afternoon fire was about to become one of epic proportions and something that we're still talking about a century later. Less than 15 minutes into the fire, it was completely out of control and moving towards Edgewood at a rate as fast as a person could walk. By 2 p.m., fire companies from East Point, Decatur, Marietta had all been summoned. And about an hour after that, the first fires, the, the ones I had mentioned earlier, had finally been contained. And that meant that all 204 firemen on duty are summoned to fight this one fire in the 4th Ward. We lost a lot of churches. The original Wheat Street Baptist, I think it was episode 12 I talked about that, um, that was over on Fort Street. And it was the last edge of the fire um, that was lost. Grace Methodist, Jackson Street Baptist, Westminster Presbyterian. There are two buildings, interestingly, that survived. One was a business and one was a house. So the Trio Laundry Building, which I mentioned in the Washerwoman episode, it had just installed a sprinkler system. So the shell survived, and we still see that building today. And the home that survived was on Arnold Street. Now, I'm glazing over this quickly, but this is pandemonium. People who live in the path of the fire are outside of their homes, and they're taking water buckets or garden hose, and they're just dousing their houses. They're mostly trying to douse their roofs or even the whole house if it was wooden, with the hope that if they could get it wet enough when the fire reaches them, it would not catch. In desperation, they are dragging out their most precious belongings and hiding them, you know, in the woods if they can, or as far away from the house as possible. Most families in these days would have a chest where, you know, family Bibles, special items were kept. So almost all of these houses, if you just picture, everyone is standing outside their house with their chest in the front lawn, you know, special pieces of furniture. I, I think I read there was a piano dragged out. And one of these people affected would be our future mayor, William Hartsfield. William was a young man um, with a young family, and he had dragged out his son's crib, and I think he was able to take a box of their possessions. I think he dragged it about two blocks and stuck it in the woods. Now, parts of Boulevard were actually paved with wooden blocks, and so the entire street is very literally on fire. In just three hours, the fire had covered one whole mile. There were 2,000 troops stationed at Fort McPherson. They were called out. Um, many of them were helping civilians, getting as close as they can, doing bucket brigades. But eventually, uh, they were joined by the National Guard. At 5 p.m., martial law had been declared in the city of Atlanta. By 6 p.m., the fire has traveled up to Ponce de Leon, a kind of North Avenue area. Now, our mayor at the time of this fire was pretty new. I think he'd been on the job for six months, and it was none other than Asa Candler. Candler is the man responsible for making Coca-Cola a national sensation, and he had just transferred the shares to his five children in order to pursue his civic dreams and run for mayor. So in a joint decision between the mayor and the fire chiefs, at least that's how it's portrayed, the plan to dynamite the homes at Boulevard and North Avenue was made. And the idea is to create a fire break. So a place that when the fire reached, it would have nothing to use as kindling. And another tidbit from Chief Talbert, this was a bad idea. <laughs> he said it was a really, really terrible idea. Um, and interestingly enough, it was never tested because as the fire approached the break, 
the winds changed and essentially turned the fire back toward the destruction it had just caused. So because there's not much left to burn, the fire officially halts at 7.45 p.m. Now, of course, firemen are dealing with smoke and embers and ensuring that everything is extinguished, and it would not be declared contained until 10.40 p.m. that night. The damage was overwhelming. It took out 73 square blocks, more than 300 acres, 1,938 buildings, 1,900 homes, and it left 10,000 Atlanta residents homeless. You can see why it's getting its own episode, right? Only one death was reported, and that was of a woman who died from shock after learning her house had been burned. I put a map um, on the episode show notes so you can kind of see the swath of land that this took out. But if you can imagine from Decatur Street all the way to Ponce de Leon, and then from Edgewood kind of over to Auburn, and then what they then called Houston Street, but is now John Wesley Dobbs Avenue. And this was 5% of the city's population and the majority were African-American. The damages totaled $5 million, which is almost $100 million today, and about half of these homeowners did not have homeowner's insurance. The homeless slept in family or friends' homes, but few had that luxury. Many people slept in Piedmont Park or shelters that had been created by the city. So for the African-American community, the Oddfellows Building on Auburn Avenue was designated by the Red Cross as a shelter, and it had about 200 cots, they also lined cots in the churches along Auburn Avenue and, you know, any kind of church that was in the near area. Local businesses and businessmen donated to the fund relief efforts. I think the first donation came from Rich's department store. But they were able to collect a total of $50,000 from white and black businesses. Many Atlantans volunteered um, in the armory, and then one of those people was Margaret Mitchell. She would go on to write Gone with the Wind. So if you've seen Gone with the Wind, and I can't believe I'm talking about Gone with the Wind, there's that scene uh, in the war with the hospital in Atlanta, and, you know, I wonder if there was some kind of real-life experience there or something. The effects of this fire were, of course, physical. In a letter from Mayor Hartsfield, he reminisces about the thousands of trees that were lost. There were stately homes of both white and black Atlantans all along Boulevard, and they were gone. All of these lots that were at one point grand residential lots were replaced with apartment buildings. And the wealthy white residents moved further up Peachtree or to Druid Hills, and then commercial buildings are added to Edgewood, Auburn. It's hard to explain, but it completely changes the character of what that area used to look like. And most of us are just kind of used to what it looked like now. You know, I can't imagine Edgewood without a bunch of businesses on it. But before, it used to be private one-family homes. Around 50 acres at Boulevard and Highland were developed as the Georgia Baptist Hospital, which is now Atlanta Medical Center. Now, as you can imagine, just nine days later, the city of Atlanta announced that it would enforce the shingle ordinance and we would get rid of wooden shingles. Almost one year later to the day, the Atlanta Fire Department completely motorizes. And these new engines came from New York. Um, I read an account that said they were painted bright red with yellow wheels. Joe had a great historical uh, panorama with the whole fleet lined up in Piedmont Park, so I'll try to post that photo as well. The Sweet Auburn Curb Market, which is over on Edgewood Avenue now, was also established about a year later on the site that had been cleared by the fire. 
I always talk about the fire when I start my Auburn tour because in a way, the race ride happened on one end and the fire happened on the other. And these two events sort of pushed all of the African-American business activity onto one street. As we cross under the connector, you know, headed towards Boulevard, the stories on that part of the block always begin in the 1920s. And they are often stories of churches or businesses that lost their original location and then they decided to rebuild on Auburn because, you know, Auburn had already had that reputation. The city also upgraded its water system and phone system. You know, this fire highlighted a lot of issues um, and things to improve that the city had to do. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. Uh, you can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.